Well, if you got here at the start, you caught me drinking a little quick gulp of water because I've got a very important song to sing. Um, let's see if I can remember the words that I just made up. Um, just sit right back and you'll hear a tale turning to Acts 27 of a fateful trip that started from Caesarea port with Paul on a tiny ship. Okay, well, I guess that's probably plenty. That's about all I could remember anyway. Didn't have time to write more. Um, we have played with that song in times past and uh, other places writing creative words for one thing or another. So that may bring back some memories for some of you. Ha, thanks, Debbie. Great singing, right? Um, at any rate, uh, you probably remember that theme song, right? Gilligan's Island uh, from the 60s, I think. Sherwood Schwartz, is that his name? He may have written the words to it um, and was the creator of the, of the series. I was looking up some stuff about that this week since I knew I was going to be bringing it up. And I, I don't think that ran for very long. I think just a few seasons and then, of course, the uh, eventual movie sequels where they get rescued. Oh, Spoiler alert, uh, they get rescued in one of those and then end up back on the island again and shipwrecked. So at any rate, that's uh, that's that's kind of where we are. I just cut my wife off of the video. That's not good. Um, so at any rate, uh, we're going to be kind of talking about something like that today. In Acts 27, it actually is, for sure, um, the voyage of the Apostle Paul and his the group that was on the the ship with them to uh, Rome. It's kind of interesting. Uh, it will. Um, it it is pretty pretty amazing. Uh, it's pretty adventurous. It's pretty exciting. Um, and so, uh, some of you that uh, have are familiar with that, you probably are aware of that. As we've gone along in this study in the Book of Acts, I've reminded you at times to check your handy dandy Bible maps. And this is another one of those times where it would be really, really good and helpful and interesting, I think, for you to uh, to do that. Um, the map that you want is probably something like Paul's journey to Rome or Paul's voyage to Rome or um, Paul's third mission journey and voyage to Rome. Sometimes those are uh, combined. If you don't have it in the back of your Bible, or if you have a good study Bible, then you may have it uh, in in the text. The NIV Study Bible has it like right uh, there uh, in the in the passage where Acts uh, 27 is. Um, another uh, one place that I found a map that I've used and put on some PowerPoint slides um, <clears throat> from Paul Fuller of SlideShare. And it's, um, it's got something like that right there. And that's, uh, that's basically what we're going to be doing today. We'll probably refer to this map some because I think it, it's really uh, helpful. Uh, but you can see, you know, Paul's journey is going to go from, uh, from Caesarea on the southeastern uh, part uh, coast of the uh, Mediterranean Sea and then kind of up the coast a bit and he's going to change ships somewhere and then uh, they're gonna they're gonna make a go of it even though it's not the best time of year as you know and they'll uh, they'll sail around the island of crete and that's when they feel like oh we lucked out we're going to get a nice breeze it's going to take us all the way 
to Italy, and unfortunately, that's not what happens. Um, so, um, if you have something like that, I would suggest you uh, just kind of refer to it. I, I may toss that up there again a time or two, uh, but um, uh, but at any rate, it is um, it is uh, it is a, a very exciting chapter in Acts 27, and that's where where we're going to be today. Uh, as we have seen, Paul uh, after his third at the end of his third mission journey, it kind of ends abruptly when the Jewish leaders arrest him in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, he's, I think, just like in other, at other times, probably intends to go up to uh, uh, north to uh, Antioch of Syria, the sponsoring church, and uh, is unable to do that. Uh, he is arrested. There's a plot against him. Uh, his nephew hears about it, tells him, uh, has him tell the commander, the commander, uh, has him sent uh, to uh, Caesarea and uh, up from uh, down from Jerusalem. And in Caesarea, he stands before uh, two different governors, uh, uh, first one, Governor Felix, and then Governor Festus. And while Governor Festus is just getting started, uh, King Agrippa and his sister Bernice come and pay their respects. And while they're uh, the governor talks to him about Paul and uh, Agrippa, uh, King Herod Agrippa II, familiar with the Jewish way, uh, connected to the Jews and the Jewish nation, um, says, well, I'd like to hear him. And so the governor says, okay, tomorrow you will. And at this time, Paul has already appealed to Caesar. And so he's, you know, his future is set. He's not going to be condemned by the governor or the king. He is going to uh, get to make his case uh, before uh, Caesar. Um, and so uh, that's, that's kind of what gets us to right here. This past Tuesday, we got to read that great chapter in Acts 26 where Paul defends himself. And as we saw in chapter 22 and, and a little bit in chapters 24 and 25, um, he does that by telling his story. When, he, when he's questioned about what, what are you doing, why are you doing this, that's what he does. He, he goes back and he tells the story of his conversion to Christ, meeting Jesus on the road, uh, on the road to Damascus to continue more persecution of the church that Luke records in Acts 9, and having Ananias come to him and say, hey, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away. And he does that and immediately starts preaching uh, there in Damascus, then get, later goes to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and elders, and, and uh, then goes from there, um, a brief history in some different places, such as in the book of Galatians, and, uh, and he, um, he, he goes on, and he finds himself in Antioch of Syria uh, at the uh, behest of uh, Barnabas, who uh, is the one who had taken him by the hand and introduced him around in Jerusalem and vouched for him. And they go on that mission journey, then the second mission journey, and he, he tells this story in a compacted way in Acts 22, and then again in Acts 26 before King Agrippa. And remember in Acts 26 is uh, one of those places where that term Christian is used only three times, Acts 11, verse 26, the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. In 1 uh, Peter 4, uh, the apostle Peter says, hey, look, if you're going to suffer, um, suffer as a Christian. Don't suffer as a criminal. Uh, suffer for your faith. If if suffering is in the will of God for you, then so be it. Um, and then in Acts 26, when King Agrippa says, do you think, Paul, in just a short time, one little message, one short uh, Bible study 
that you can convince me to be a Christian. And Paul says, man, I wish, I wish everybody would do that. Um, and so King Agrippa and the governor kind of chat for a little bit after that. And, um, and they say, you know, this guy has done nothing worthy of incarceration. It's certainly not anything worthy of death. Um, we could release him right now, but he has appealed to Caesar. And remember, the reason he appealed to Caesar is not because he was worried about his guilt or innocence. It's because he was worried that if the Romans let him loose, the Jews would kill him. And so that's why he had appealed, uh, made his appeal to, um, to the emperor. And so that's going to bring us to chapter uh, 27 and this voyage. And it's a great, you know, it's a great story. It's really exciting. And there's always been something exciting about, about um, voyages in the sea. And there's always been some uh, uh, stories about uh, when fate takes a turn and uh, bad things happen. Um, and so we have Gilligan's Island and that great theme song. And if you missed my singing that theme song at the beginning of this uh, lesson, eh, too bad for you. Sorry about that, uh, Eric and Cindy. I don't know if y'all got on on time. I know Debbie did. Well done. Debbie has a very low threshold of quality uh, singing. And so uh, nice. Thanks for the uh, compliment there, Debbie. I can poke a little fun with you. She's my good sister in Christ. And uh, and so, you know, you can, you're, you're welcome to go back and do that if you want. Uh, there's another famous song, um, and these are the words, the legend lives on from the Chippewan down of the big lake they call Gitchigumi. The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. Remember who did that one? Yeah, that would be Gordon Lightfoot. And uh, that was a song entitled The S. The Edmund Fitzgerald, uh, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. So a little bit of history. Uh, we know the history of Gilligan's Island. If you don't, just go to MeTV or one of those other uh, shows that shows a lot of syndicated sitcoms from the 60s and 70s. Uh, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald sank in a terrible storm on Lake Superior on November 10, 1975. Unlike the SS Minnow, <laughs> uh, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald was actually a real historical uh, ship that crashed, that, that uh, sank. Uh, they sank in Lake Superior, November 10th, 1975. All 29 crew members were lost. Gordon Lightfoot wrote the song, immortalizing the event one month later after reading the Newsweek article entitled uh, The Cruelest Month, and um, the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald was described there, or noted there. Uh, he included it on his album a year later, so the song came out uh, in 1976 after the wreck and, and Gordon Lightfoot's writing of it a year before. Uh, storms and shipwrecks of all kinds will come. Scripture nowhere tells us, nowhere promises that uh, if we'll just trust in Jesus, if we'll just believe in God, if we'll just try to live a good life, that we won't experience difficulties. That's I wish I could tell you, I wish I could tell people, you know, if you'll just turn your heart over to Jesus, your life will, they'll, they'll, there won't be any pain, you won't be falsely accused, uh, you'll have uh, a good job, you'll have money in the bank, you'll have good health, God will always answer your prayers with a yes. That's, that's just not true. It's just not true. And Jesus himself says even, just the opposite is true. A very familiar passage in John 16, verse 33. I seem to quote it a lot, especially these days in the wonderful 2020 year. Um, 
Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So the peace that Jesus brings is a different sort of peace than anybody else can, can give you. Because the peace that others can give you that's available to anybody in the world is just based on circumstances. And if your circumstances are good, then um, you're, you're at peace. <laughs> but we all know that in this world, there is trouble. Sometimes we bring it on ourselves. Sometimes it's because of somebody else's sin. Uh, sometimes it's, it's just the way of the world, that, that there are storms and difficulties. And, um, and it's, it's, a, it, it's horrible to, it almost seems callous to put it that way because it, it describes real suffering and real pain in real people's lives. And, and it's horrible, and it strikes at the very heart of God because it was not his vision for this world. His vision for this world was uh, for the, uh, the man and woman that he created uh, to be at peace with each other and to be at peace with him. But that wasn't what we decided to do. We decided we wanted to be selfish and do things ourselves. And, um, and so God gave us the opportunity to have free will and put us in a world where there's trouble and there's storms. And sometimes there's difficulties that um, are, are our own fault, as I said, because of our own poor choices and our own sinfulness. Sometimes it's somebody else's sinfulness that causes trouble on us. And I think that's pretty much what the Apostle Paul was experiencing along with the difficulties that come in this world. He would have never been on this ship as a prisoner to Rome. Maybe he would have been as a missionary, but he was on this ship because he had been forced to appeal to Caesar. And so, you know, the state of Rome was uh, paying for his way to go to um, the very presence of the emperor in the capital of the empire and, and preach the message of Christ. I think that's probably how Paul looked at it. But he was a prisoner, and, and the reason he was a prisoner is because of others' sins, because of their selfishness and their sinfulness and their jealousy and their pride, which is exactly what uh, had Jesus crucified as well. And so we, we get that. This is a world where, just as Jesus said, we're, we're going to have trouble, but he has overcome the world. Now, he did that by giving his life up on the cross. And so even in that moment of victory, and we sing the great song, Victory in Jesus, sometimes love that song. Uh, even though Jesus gave us the victory, he did so by um, what the world saw as being defeated and his life taken from him. So we realize that we can have peace in this world even though there's trouble because that peace comes from Jesus. The people who crucified him, as Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Um, that he, he wasn't joyful because he had no pain. He was clearly was in pain, emotionally and physically, as he quoted that great statement from the 22nd Psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, we knew his heart was breaking and his body was breaking and and, uh, and he, he suffered a great deal for us, and yet there was an inner sense of joy that even all of those things couldn't take away. And the same is true of us. Uh, we'll have storms, we'll have challenges, we'll have hurts, and we'll have trouble in this world. Uh, but, but Jesus has overcome the world, and so because of that, uh, we can be at peace. Storms and shipwrecks, they're going to come. 
And, uh, and the Bible assures us, though, that, uh, that God will be present with us uh, throughout. Um, one of the most detailed accounts of early sea travel is found, guess where? In the Bible. Guess where in the Bible? Acts 27. And, and Luke, of course, that masterful writer, very detail-oriented physician, according to other scripture, uh, he didn't miss much. And he was guided by the Holy Spirit, absolutely. But he also had his own personality and his own research in this. He, he affirms that at the very beginning of Luke 1 when he says, Hey, um, I, I've done my homework. I, I studied. I read other things that were out there. I re did my research. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm writing uh, this message of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And now in the book of Acts, his second volume, um, the story of the first few decades of the, of the church that Jesus died to establish. And, uh, and so we, we get to read about that, and we get to read about this very difficult uh, few months that Paul spent uh, trying to get uh, to Rome as he had appealed uh, to Caesar. Um, they fight through a horrible storm, all on board survive. Um, but the ship is destroyed when it strikes a sandbar and is broken to pieces by the surf. Um, and, it, and that is, as it's not even near Italy yet, it's, it's just on this island of Malta, just off the coast of, of Sicily, south of Italy still. And uh, once the winter is over, he'll have more work uh, to do and more travel um, uh, to make. And so with all of that in mind, I... Um, you know, I again um, encourage you to look at a, at a map. If you have one with you, uh, you can see that, um, that island on the, um, I guess that would be the western part of the, of the Mediterranean Sea, just south of Sicily, south of Italy. He's going to Rome. He's going to get uh, uh, stranded on the island of Malta. But there's a lot that happens uh, before then. Um, and so it's... Uh, um, it, it's interesting to note all of this and to kind of give a little bit of background and a few details as we, um, as we begin. Um, and so let's start uh, reading in Acts 27, uh, beginning in verse 1. Uh, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. So this guy is He's in charge of a lot of troops, could be a hundred, I think. I don't know that that's exactly true with all centurions, but he was an officer. He was in charge of a lot of troops, and he was also a member of the Imperial Regiment, which means that he's kind of like he's stationed uh, in Rome. He is uh, somebody who answers directly to Caesar. He typically is doing, uh, wherever he is in the world, the work of the emperor. Uh, verse 2, we boarded a ship from Adramedium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, uh, was with us. And so there, remember Asia is, and when you read it in the New Testament, it's not the continent of Asia, as we call it, but rather that, that Roman, uh, first century Roman district province on the western part of what we would call modern-day Turkey. Uh, and that was the province of Asia. And it was there that places like Thyatira and Ephesus and Laodicea could be found, those uh, and the other seven churches of Asia that Jesus uh, writes a letter to and gives it to John in what we call uh, the Revelation. 
And so that's where Paul is going to get started, and that's where his voyage is going to take him. Uh, and he's there with Aristarchus, a Macedonian uh, from Thessalonica. And at, again, Luke at times will write in the first person plural. And typically, I think it's safe to assume, I think it's logically speaking, that during those times in those passages, he was, he was actually with Paul. And, and it's at that time that it appears Luke got to be a part of this voyage firsthand. And that could explain the great detail uh, that uh, we read about in this, um, in, in this uh, voyage. Verse 3, the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. We're going to see that kindness uh, even when he's in Rome sort of under, pretty much under house arrest. He's not able to, uh, to, to be free completely, but he is able to have uh, some of his needs met, and he is able to do uh, some teaching and preaching. Verse 4, from there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There, verse 6, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. Uh, we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Sinaitis. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete, opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lacia. And so we see Paul uh, and his party in this ship. They're leaving Caesarea. They're leaving the eastern Mediterranean coast. They go up a ways and around, and we find them uh, uh, being able to, to find another vessel, probably a vessel that was in better condition to manage uh, the, the Mediterranean Sea and the long journey, uh, and, and is already going to Rome, and so they're going to, uh, they're going to get on, on board that ship, Paul and the officers and the others that are planning on, on going with him. So a few things about, about this so far. We'll kind of stop along the way as we travel with Paul on this voyage. Uh, it's over 2,000 miles from Caesarea to Rome. Uh, they left approximately, the dates of course are approximate, they could be off, but um, not very much likely, but they left in September of 59 in the Common Era, AD 59, and arrive around fe February of the following year uh, in AD 60 or 60 CE. Um, basically, that trip shouldn't take that long, even in the first century. Uh, but as we'll see, they have to spend a few months riding out um, the winter, marooned, <laughs> uh, not on an uncharted desert isle as Gilligan and his friends were, but actually on the island uh, of Malta. And when they land there, they interact with the residents of that island and are able to uh, uh, hear and find out where, where they are, and that's where they spend uh, the winter. Um, Luke records that they changed ships in Myra and Lycia, which is in southwestern uh, Turkey, what we would call southwestern Turkey, and they get on a large Alexandrian grain ship and sail to Fair Havens, which is a port on the south coast of the island of Crete. So this is an Alexandrian ship. This is a Greek ship. 
uh, it's uh, meant to go uh, a ways, and they have changed uh, uh, ships in Myra and Lycia, and now they're on, um, on this ship that they hope, I think, is going to take them all the way to their destination, uh, which is the coast of Italy. Um, okay, and so we keep, we keep reading. And as we read, what we're going to find is this. Despite Paul warning against it, they set sail uh, for another harbor uh, there in, uh, in Crete. It's, um, they're, basically, they're going along um, the southern border of uh, the southern coast of the island of Crete, and they're trying to work their way around that island, uh, going on the southern tip of it, uh, southern part of it, going from east to west, and what happens is they get forced out to sea by, um, by a, a, a bad winter wind that, um, uh, just like those on the Edmund Fitzgerald, as Gordon Lightfoot sings, uh, that uh, the gales of November come early. Um, okay, so let's read starting in verse 9 then of Acts 27. Much time had been lost. And sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So winter is approaching. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Now I'm wondering if money is involved. You know, in decisions like this, there's always money involved. And if the owner of that ship had known what was going to happen, that his, he was, his ship would be lost, um, he would have said, well, it's much cheaper for me to not let you pay for this whole voyage right now, and let's just hold off a while. I think what probably happened is that he wanted his money, and he wanted his money for this voyage that his ship was going to take. And of course, the pilot, you know, pilot, Oh, yeah, sure, we can do it. We can make it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, been, been th you can almost hear him. I've been through a lot worse storms than probably what we're ever going to see. Um, not a good decision. Acts 27, verse 12. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. So not Phoenix, Arizona. You would think, well, how are they going to get a voyage? I don't think how that would... Well, of course not. They're going around again on the southern coast of Crete and trying to get to this um, coastal city of Phoenix where it was kind of on that uh, southwestern tip of the island. And so it's facing southwest and northwest. And, um, and they're hoping to get there at least that far, and then decide maybe maybe we'll winter there, uh, and 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 at least we'll be that much farther um, along. Or if things look favorable, we'll uh, we'll just keep going uh, from there. Uh, well, there are 276 people aboard on this on this ship. Uh, we read that in verse um, verse 37 of Acts 27. And um, at this point, Paul is saying, look, this is not a good idea, guys. This is not, not going to be successful. But they don't listen to him. They go ahead and they strike out. And so now uh, we'll read uh, this exciting narrative starting in verse 13. Uh, because when they set sail from there and are trying to get to that southwestern port of Phoenix uh, on the island of Crete, that's when the storm hits. 
and they're taken out into the open sea. And remember, these aren't, these aren't vessels like the Titanic, although it didn't go so well for that either. It's not vessels like the Edmund Fitzgerald. It's not vessels like we would see today in any of our port cities and harbors, uh, but rather this was a first century uh, ship. It was, um, you know, maybe not as primitive as some in that day because it was a large ship. It could handle almost 300 people on board. Uh, but still, it was, it was not uh, a pleasant trip at best. And as we read, it's, it's going to be even worse. Um, for two weeks, they fight to survive uh, the storm. And that's what we're about to read. The crew members raise the lifeboat under the deck and pass ropes under the ship to hold it together. Um, ultimately, they'll throw the cargo and the tackle overboard and lose all hope of being saved. Um, Luke's narrative is great. Starting in verse 13, when a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. And so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. They're thinking, oh, this is great. We've got this nice gentle breeze. It's going to take us around the island. We can control things. It'll be fine. And we'll end up um, at the port of Phoenix. Verse 14, before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeastern swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. They were being forced out away from the, uh, away from, uh, the mainland. So we gave way to it and were driven along. There comes a time when you say, okay, we're just going to go with it. And that's what they did. Verse 16, as we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. They were about to lose the lifeboat. Things were so rough. I mean, Dramamine wouldn't help here. <laughs> I'm just saying, if it was Bill on board, uh, it would not be pretty. Uh, but the men, verse 17, hoisted the lifeboat aboard. Uh, and so they, they got the lifeboat up on the ship. Um, then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. And it's just amazing, you know. How do you do that in the midst of a storm? You've got this horrible wind. You've got this storm raging. Uh, you're thinking the boat, the ship itself, is going to fall apart. And so you want to try to save the lifeboat because it's, that's what it's for. It's a lifeboat. You might very well need it. And so they bring it aboard, and then they, these brave men uh, get into the water and pass that rope underneath uh, the ship and literally tie the ship uh, together. It's, it's just amazing. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. So we're just going to, again, we're just going to kind of go with it. Verse 18, we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Day after day, night after night, the storm kept raging. And they kept, they really had no idea where they were. They just knew they were out in the open sea somewhere. And scared to death that they're all going to die. And, and the, the seasoned sailors, <laughs> the crew, uh, they're, they're probably thinking, yeah, I've been through some stuff like this before, but nothing ever this bad. And they're probably saying, yeah, I heard about this particular storm, this particular wind. Uh, people, uh, you don't come back from this. 
and they've already thrown the tackle overboard. They have tried to tie the ship together. A little while later, they're going to eat something and throw the rest of the food overboard. Uh, why? To just try to lighten the load so that maybe in some way this ship uh, will hold together and just won't sink. Uh, they're going to be doing this routine day and night, 24 hours a day, for two whole weeks. And you think, two whole weeks? That's not too bad, Bill. Really? You don't think so? I don't want two whole hours of something like what they're talking about here. And again, Luke is able to record um, what happens um, what happens next. And so verse 21, after they had lost all hope of being saved. Verse 21, after they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, you know, you hate to think that Paul would stand up and say, I told you so. But he stands up and says, I told you so. <laughs> and of course, Paul has special insight into the, the things that are going to happen and the things that are going on. Um, verse 21, after they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. And if I'm one of those sailors, I'm thinking, yeah, you're dreaming, buddy. How do you know this? Well, Paul continues, verse 23. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. And so another one of those interesting visions that Paul has. Uh, he has seen Jesus on the road to Damascus. He has seen a vision of the Lord and encouraging words when he was at Corinth. Who knows how many other times. Now, in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, in the midst of a horrible, horrible voyage and storm where there's not much hope of being saved, he receives another visit. And he receives the encouraging words that um, you're going to be okay. You're going to get to Rome. And everyone's life is going to be spared. Um, so, verse 25, Keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. And that's exactly what's going uh, to happen. Paul receives this message from an angel of God and tells them that they will survive. But what we're going to see is that they have to stay with the ship. And uh, now, as they decide to move forward, they will take some food. And it's interesting the way Paul has them do that. It has memories and reminiscence of Jesus uh, instituting the Lord's Supper um, and the times when Jesus fed the multitudes himself before uh, that last week of his life. Um, Paul is going to share an experience like that with these pagan <laughs> sailors and the few Christian men that are with him as well. Verse 27 of Acts 27, on the 14th night, 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. Good news or bad news? A little scary. Yeah, I'd love to be out of this uh, sea, but how is that going to happen? I mean, 
yeah, land comes up. It's, if it's dark at night and you don't know, bang, that's not a good result. Verse 28, they took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found out it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. I love the way that's written. That would be me, praying for daylight. It's, it's night. They're taking these soundings. They're seeing that the, the, uh, 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 the ground is the, it's getting shallow, which means we're approaching land, which means we could be approaching rocks and a coast. And this is not going to be pretty. And so they get scared. And they drop anchors and they say, look, let's, let's see if we can keep this thing together and not get any closer to land until we can see what land we're getting into. Um, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. Uh, verse 30, in an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Uh, these guys had seen enough, they had had enough, they had decided, you know, this job ain't worth me losing my life over. Uh, good luck with these prisoners and everybody else. We're out. This is the crew. Um, not a good look for them. Verse 31, then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, and these guys were the guys in charge, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. He didn't say unless these men stay with the ship, they will not be saved. He said, everybody's got to stay on this ship until there is no more ship. And Paul says, look, everybody's got to be here or else you're going to lose your life. Verse 32, so the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Can you just imagine these sailors trying their best to do kind of incognito, lying about their purpose? They're going to drop this lifeboat into the sea and get it away from the big ship that who knows what's going to happen to it. Um, and Paul tells the centurion, the commander, and, and the soldiers, look, you got to stop them or else you're, you're going to be lost yourselves. And so these brave soldiers, they go over in the midst of those sailors and they just cut the lifeboat away. And I can just see the sailors on the edge of that boat watching that lifeboat until they could see it uh, no longer in the dark. Um, very, very incredible scene. Very incredible scene. Now here we are on this boat no lifeboat, dark, um, the tackle has been thrown overboard, the lifeboat is lost, um, it's been two weeks, and so Paul is going to put on his minister's hat. Verse 33, just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the past 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. They probably haven't slept either. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. Wow, that's amazing. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, verse 37, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. What a, what a great moment of faith. What a great witness this is for Paul the Apostle. He's already told them, hey, look, I, an angel of God visited me and told me that we're going to be okay. I, he wants me to get to Rome, and all of you are going to live, but 
it, it's still really hard right now. <laughs> We're in the midst of this storm and everybody's nervous and scared. Um, and then later on, he tells him, look, I told you guys, you know, this is, this is not what should have happened, but, but you've been in this, at this day and night, minute by minute for over two weeks. It, you need to eat something. You need to get some strength in you because it's going to be hard when we, when we try to get through this next part. And you're going to need every ounce of strength that you can have. And so he encourages them to eat something. And so he takes some bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it to them. And it's, again, this isn't a Lord's Supper um, situation. What this is, is a time when Paul, in gratitude, uh, looks to God uh, to help these men and to give them sustenance. It's, it's basically kind of like us saying grace before a meal when we really feel it, when we really mean it, when we know how valuable this food is and we know how much it's needed and we pray that God would use it uh, to give us strength and nourishment to go through whatever is ahead for us. That's what Paul is doing. But as he does it, he points back. He points back to what happened when Jesus broke bread uh, with the multitudes and when Jesus broke bread with his disciples the night that he was betrayed and the night before he was killed. Um, and Paul knew that story. He wasn't there, but he had heard it by the Lord himself, he says in 1 Corinthians 11. And one of the great passages on the Lord's Supper is in 1 Corinthians 11. Why? Because like everything else, the church at Corinth had messed it up so horribly. But because of that, we have that great teaching uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And, uh, and so Paul has this moment with these rugged sailors, with these Roman soldiers, with some fellow prisoners, with his friends that are with him, two or a couple of them are named, and, and with the other passengers on board uh, the ship. And so they, they do that, um, uh, and they have 276 men on board. Verse 38, when they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. So they've thrown the tackle overboard. They've thrown the lifeboat out. They have, um, they have now thrown away all their food. Verse 39, when daylight came, they did not recognize the land. They, they already knew they were getting close to land. Remember, they had taken those soundings. They knew it was close, but they had no idea uh, where they were. Um, they did not recognize the land when daylight came, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Let's make for the beach. Let's, there's a nice, soft, sandy spot away from the rocks. Let's, let's see if we can go there. Verse 40, cutting loose the anchors. Remember, they had anchored themselves down. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Now, I got to tell you, when Bill reads stuff like that, Bill's thinking, I wonder if I went off the coast of the Malta, south of Sicily, if I could find a place that kind of looks like this and maybe have some equipment with a Jacques Cousteau kind of person and maybe I could find one of those anchors. Yeah, well, that's how Bill thinks. Uh, not going to happen. Uh, verse 40, cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. I love that. They were made for the beach. That sandy part, let's, let's go there. But, yeek, you know what's going to happen, right? Verse 41, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. 
they think they're doing good. They found a sandy spot. There's not rocks around. We're going to make it. We're going to be able to get this crazy boat to the beach. And, and then they get stuck. <laughs> and even though there's no rocks around, there's that surf that's just banging against the ship. And ultimately, the ship is just torn apart uh, by uh, the surf and the pounding of the surf. Verse 42, the soldiers plan to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. I mean, they're still on duty, right? They're still going to have to answer for what happened to these guys. Well, we, we had a horrible voyage, and the ship ran aground, and everybody was thrown into the sea, and that was the last we saw of these guys. Well, that's not going to be good enough. When you're taking prisoners to the emperor, um, that's not going to be good enough. So they're going to kill them to save themselves. And to be able to say, yeah, they were going to get away scot-free, but we took care of that. Verse 43, but the centurion, the guy in charge, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. I mean, he knew that Paul was somebody. He didn't know why he was arrested. He didn't know uh, how he could have been accused of the things they accused him of. But he knew that Paul was a good guy. And he had seen how he had acted on this voyage, and he had also heard and seen him uh, talk about his God and uh, talk about the, the concern that he has for uh, not just himself, but for everyone on board. Um, pretty impressive for this centurion to say, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Uh, nobody's killing anybody. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. <laughs> wow. Okay, how many could swim? Raise your hand. Okay, jump. Go for it. You, there's the beach. There's the, there's the coast. Get out and, and make your way there. How many of you can't swim? Okay, the rest of you, find a... You remember the Titanic? You remember, you know, um, uh, Kate and Leo on there just, uh, you know, waiting to, um, to to grab hold of something, and they end up on that, or Rose and Leo. Yeah, Kate and Leo's another movie. Anyway, um, they're there, and they're trying to, Jack, that's it, that's it, Rose and Jack. Yeah, they're real, anyway, they're there, they find this piece of plank that's big enough to hold them on the sea, and they say, look, you can't swim. That's going to be your life jacket right there. You get on that and let the, let the sea take you in um, to the beach. And that's what they do. And they, the way this chapter amazingly ends are these words. In this way, everyone reached land safely. I'm sure they kissed that ground when they got there, every single one of them. But it's just amazing. It's just amazing. To see how God took care of them. Not just Paul. Not just his Christian brothers. Everyone. Everyone. Why? Because God cares about everyone. He doesn't just care about Paul. He doesn't just care about his friends. He doesn't just care about Christians. He doesn't just care about the church. He cares about everyone. And that vision that Paul had and that, that statement that in his grace God has granted you every life and soul on board to be kept safe. Um, it is just an incredible story of the mercy of God. And we think of that great passage in 2 Peter 3 when Peter writes and says, God, God, is, God doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to die. He wants everyone to come to repentance. And that's why he hasn't pulled the plug on this world. That's why he said, hasn't said enough. This is as bad as I want it to get. Um, and it's gotten much worse at times in the last 2,000 years 
than it is right now, even though we might not think that. It, it has, trust me. And, um, and yet God says, you know, I'm going to give I'm going to give those souls that need to repent one more day. Uh, and he says that every day. One day he won't say that any longer. Uh, but, um, but until that day that no one knows, uh, we'll just keep watching. We'll just keep trusting. Uh, we'll just keep acting to help the people in the world around us. Um, and, and we'll just keep believing that just as, Paul kept, as God kept Paul and the others on board this ship safe through one of the worst storms uh, written, in the history of mankind. Um, he'll keep you safe through the storms you're, safe, you're facing. Uh, he'll keep you safe uh, from uh, the strong winds and the, the shipwrecks and all of the other threats that come your way as well. Um, and Acts, they find out in the next chapter, in, in uh, chapter 28, that this is the island of Malta. And, um, and they're going to be there for a while because they don't even have a ship anymore. And that's where they end up riding out the winter. But ultimately, as we read in the last chapter of the book of Acts that we'll see on Tuesday, um, they ride out the winter there. There's some fun stories that involve snakes and, and rulers and other stuff like that, fun, cool stuff. Um, finally, they're able to get on board a ship and get safely to uh, the coast of Italy and ultimately are able to get to, um, uh, to uh, the capital city of Rome itself. Um, God's presence through the storms of life has inspired many songs and hymns of praise. And you, you probably know, you could recite a bunch of them as well. Contemporary Christian songs such as, I will praise you in the storm by casting crowns, love casting crowns, and in the eye of the storm, what a great song that is. Uh, by Ryan Stevenson. Uh, but I want to share a story about another, another song, one that was written uh, well over 100 years ago and, um, and involved uh, a tragedy at sea as well. And I think you may know this story, and you certainly know the hymn uh, that it inspired. Um, I'm just going to read it. Horatio Spafford lived in the 1800s and was a Presbyterian elder and a successful businessman in Chicago. He lost his fortune in the wake of the great Chicago fire of 1871, and his son had died a short time before his financial disaster, but the worst was yet to come. Desiring a rest for his wife and four daughters, as well as wishing to join and assist evangelist Dwight Moody in one of his campaigns in Great Britain, Spafford planned a European trip for his family in 1873. In November of that year, due to unexpected last-minute business developments, Spafford himself had to remain in Chicago, but he sent his wife and four daughters with family and friends on ahead as scheduled on the SS Via du Havre. Havre. He expected to follow in a few days. On November 22nd, the ship collided with the Loch Urn, an English vessel, and sank in 12 minutes. Several days later, the survivors from that shipwreck and crash uh, landed in Wales, and Mrs. Spafford cabled her husband with these two words, saved alone. He had lost his four daughters, saved alone. Spafford left immediately to join his wife. While crossing the Atlantic, the captain called him into his cabin to tell him they were passing over the area of the collision. This hymn 
is said to have been written sometime around that time as he approached the area of the ocean thought to be where the ship carrying his wife and daughters had sunk and where his wife survived but saved alone. Another daughter, Bertha, was born in 1878, as well as a son, Horatio, in 1880, though he later died of scarlet fever. After the birth of another daughter, Grace, in 1881, Spafford and his wife moved to Jerusalem with several others and engaged in benevolent and philanthropic work among the Muslim, Jewish, and Christian communities there. That part is amazing, just that, after such tragedy. The hymn he wrote is very familiar and much loved. The hymn is, It is Well with My Soul. The tune composed by Philip Bliss is named for the ship which was lost along with Horatio and Anna Spafford's four daughters, Ville de Havre. The hymn continues today to be a source of strength and hope and assurance in all the ups and downs of this life. And we know this great song and those that, that first verse that captures so well the tragedy that this man had experienced when peace like a river attendeth my ways when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul paul felt that assurance in every moment of this incredible voyage and in the moments that would come as he stood up for his Lord before the most powerful people in the world of his day and shared that message of the amazing grace and the powerful blood of Jesus Christ so that he could say and we can say it is well it is well with my soul May God bless you as you serve him. I'll see you next Tuesday. Uh, if you can join us on Sunday, I'll be sharing some thoughts from Philippians. Uh, you can see it on my Facebook Live page at 4 p.m. on our website at 6. May God bless you.